Welcome to Blockstars, Ripple's podcast that features leaders and developers in crypto and blockchain to discuss the latest trends, technologies, and the real-world problems being solved. I'm your host, Ripple CTO David Schwartz. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably well aware that decentralized identity has become a hot topic in the last year. But it's still very much in its infancy as far as the technology and the use cases are concerned. We've barely scratched the surface of what's possible, and developers and builders around the world are exploring what's possible with DID. Today, I'm sitting down with a few experts in the space to demystify decentralized identity, unpack the technology, and better understand its uses for developers and users and businesses. We have a number of outstanding guests on the podcast today, and I'm super excited to talk to Julian Lightloff, co-founder of Fractal.id, Julian Verhel de Dios, co-founder and CTO of Heirloom, Aaron Slope, co-founder at The And Company, and Anchal Malhotra, head of RippleX research at Ripple. Welcome to Blockstars. It's great to have you all here. Great, thanks. Great to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us, David. All right, let's start with the background of our guests. Um, I guess I'll start with Julian uh, Lightloff. You want to tell us a little bit about how you got into Web3 and did? Yeah, sure. Um, quite some time ago in uh, 2017, a good friend of mine, uh, Bruce Pond from Ocean Protocol, uh, introduced me actually quite a bit earlier. Um, those guys have been building what uh, could arguably be one of the first NFTs uh, on back in the day on the Bitcoin stack. So that was quite quite exciting. And it took me a while to see the potential. So I wrapped up my first company, which my co-founder is still leading today, um, and took a look around what, what's going on. And I um, started my career in finance, um, looking at what the technology enables and bringing open source into finance was something that just resonated from the start. Julian Verheld-Dios, how did you get into Web3 and decentralized identity? I got my start in, in Web3 before it was Web3. It was back in 2014 when it was still just called crypto. I was the first engineer at a company called Gem, working on hierarchical deterministic wallets uh, and multi-sig, allowing large enterprises to use, use a secure wallet uh, to interact with their customers. And that's also where I got my first taste of decentralized identity. We pivoted into enterprise blockchain and we were working on prototypes for securely sharing medical records access uh, using the Ethereum blockchain. Then I ducked out during the ICO mania of 2017. Things got a little too crazy for me. I ended up uh, founding a company in real estate, so completely unrelated to crypto. But then when it was time to move on from that company, I had seen that since 2017, there had been a lot of progress specifically on the data models and uh, the protocols for self-sovereign identity. And I just saw it as an opportunity to jump back in. So that's why we started Heirloom last year, twenty in 2022. Aaron, how did you get into Web3 and decentralized identity? Yeah, I actually remember uh, probably in 2014, a friend of mine was working at the Fed. And this wasn't actually what got me into it, but was working at the Fed at the time. And he sends me this white paper from this company called Ripple. And I was like, I don't know you know, anything about this, but like, I'll check into it. And you know, I've been paying some attention to... Bitcoin and the things that were that were going on. And I thought the protocol was really interesting on the XRP ledger and some of the things being worked on there. And then just, you know, Ripple as a as a vocal leader in the community. And so that was interesting at the time, but I kind of set it aside and we started really working on this problem of identity. You know, identity is individual, and that's what we talk about a lot at our company. And so we think that leads to this sort of inevitable future where people will own their identities. And we're not talking about, obviously, laminated pieces of paper issued by a, a government, but that's what a lot of regular people think of if they're not in the space when you talk about identity. But we're really talking about who you are, who you want to become, your preferences, your relationships, your ability to connect with the world. 
And that's really the core of, of what we think about when we think of identity. So, you know, we naturally saw blockchains and DID, NFTs in some cases, as great technologies to really allow people to own their identities and to do that in a way where a company doesn't own that or you're not proxying it to someone else. Anshal, I know you're designing the XLS40 spec for a new native DID method on the XRP ledger. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Absolutely, yeah. Creating a native DID method on the XRP ledger, it's a very, very exciting initiative. The idea is to enable XRP ledger users to create decentralized identifier and manage their identity in a standardized and interoperable way. So the XLS40 uh, spec or DID proposal well, first of all, it's it doesn't introduce a new identity standard, but rather it builds upon the World Wide Web Consortium, aka W3C's DIDs and verifiable credential standards that are gaining quite some traction in the blockchain space. And I know you some some of you are also working on that. At a technical level in this design, well, the XRP Ledger account has a unique implicit DID associated with it. And this DID can be used to create a minimal DID document that contains public keys associated with users' identities. These DID documents and um, this DID identifier can be used by the users both for on and off ledger use cases to prove the authenticity of users' identity um, in the form of credentials that are known as verifiable credentials to gain access to various services across different platforms. I'd like to highlight a couple of key points uh, about the high-level design. That is, the security and privacy are prioritized in the design, which ensures that users do not store any sensitive information on the ledger. And interoperability and portability is also another key factor that we have taken into consideration so that it can integrate seamlessly with other DID systems. So let's back up for people who may not know exactly what we're talking about. A DID, or decentralized identity, is a standard for a decentralized self-sovereign identifier that can be stored on-chain in a crypto wallet or blockchain containing metadata that links to personal information, which is stored off-chain. They provide a secure, decentralized way for individuals and institutions to verify their identities and ownership of assets. Anshal, can you tell us a little bit about the impetus behind DIDs? What's spurring the movement? What blockchain support it? Sure. So I think the concept of decentralized identity came about as a response to the limitations and challenges of traditional centralized identity systems. And we are talking about those systems that have their fair share of problems like data breaches, lack of user control, and the need for multiple and repeated identity verifications across various platforms. DIDs aim to give individuals more power over their identities, enhanced privacy, and enable seamless interactions between different services. Now, what's driving the DID movement? Well, first off, there's this growing recognition of the importance of user-centric identity solutions and the need for enhanced privacy. People are becoming increasingly aware of the value of their personal data, and they want to be the ones calling the shots. DID protocols that leverage blockchain technology addresses these concerns by letting individuals store their identity information locally or in a decentralized manner, giving them the control that they are craving for. Another driving force is the need for interoperability and portability. Well, traditional identity systems are a bit of a mess when it comes to data portability. They often lack standardization and make portability a real, real headache. But DID protocols are changing the game. 
This means your identity becomes portable when they are built on open standards and leverage the power of blockchain tech. So you talk about end users a lot. Are the primary use cases, at least for now, between end users or end user to business, business to business, enterprise already or maybe in the future? So we've actually seen all, all combinations of those, David. At Airloom, we've been focused mostly on higher ed, but it's been broadening out to a bunch of different, uh, different use cases as well. And even within higher ed, we've seen user to user, so like an individual holding a credential that represents either their degree or something that they've achieved. We've seen uh, a higher, you know, the institutions themselves holding their own accreditations of like, I, you know, I am a valid institution that exists in the United States and I, I, have, I have the accreditation to give to confer a degree on somebody. And then you even have weird cases where you might have uh, like objects owning things like the authenticity of a pair of sneakers is another weird one that we've seen before of like the, the sneakers themselves have a did and then they hold a credential. So we've seen like all kinds of weird permutations of this stuff. And that's what's actually really cool about the protocols and the, and the data models is that they're, they're, they're pretty flexible and can represent a whole bunch of different trust relationships very flexibly. So I know DID is linked to compliance use cases, things like I don't want to receive money from a terrorist. You know, I don't want terror. I don't want to owe money to terrorists. I don't want to interact with people who are sanctioned. I have KYC AML requirements. I was wondering, uh, Julian Lightloff, if you could tell us a little bit more about Fractal's use case for decentralized identity and how it plays into these regulatory requirements like KYC, AML, sanctions, compliance, those kinds of things. Yeah, sure. Uh, maybe also connecting it to the question you asked before. Those were the first use cases that we saw in Web3 popping up, right? So KYC is uh, the reusability of you know your customer process is something that we've been talking about for the last seven years, most likely. And it, it's kind of um, a pity that we haven't gotten to a point where this is just organized through decentralized identity. And uh, we have moved really beyond uh, proof of concepts and into the actual operational usage. So that's something that I think in uh, this year is actually going to change. We see quite a bit of movement in terms of bringing this on chain. When we're talking specifically about the application of DIDs for compliance, there is still some way to go if we actually consider everything that needs to be considered here because we're also talking about data privacy, right? Anshal was already mentioning that. Um, how do we make sure that it's available, interoperable, but I also have uh, a certain discoverability to a signal to adapt, hey, I, I'm actually already identified because there are so many ways that what people consider to be a decentralized identity, you know, talking about soulbound tokens, NFTs, registries, um, uh, you know, um, some solve that through Web2 APIs and call it decentralized identity. And what we're trying to do is to actually bridge all of that. So we're not uh, necessarily only focused on KYC, but on identity as a whole. So basically to make sure that someone is a unique human being and has certain characteristics. Uh, Julian Verheld-Dios, Heirloom just recently came out of stealth and is exploring the use of DID in a totally different industry, primarily education. Uh, how could it be used in that kind of space? Yeah, so what's been fun about having higher ed as a testbed is that it's, it's kind of a microcosm of the broader world and that it presents a whole bunch of use cases that are general that can generalize out to other industries. So just starting with the degree, that's an, that's an obvious use case of a VC. Um, the issuer is the university. 
the subject is uh, the subject did is the student. But in working with our first customer, which is the University of Southern California here in LA, we've uncovered a bunch of different groups inside of the university that have found utilities in DIDs and VCs that can generalize outside of higher ed. A couple of examples are. Uh, there's some like prestigious student-run clubs on campus. The one example is the, the Roch- there's like a rocketry club um, that's on campus that uh, that a lot of recruiters, when they're trying to hire uh, aeronautical engineers, they will specifically ask, "Oh, if you came from USC, did you, were you part of that club?" And so, what a lot of these clubs have signaled to us is they want to be able to for for their members to be able to prove that they were actually part of the club without having to have them in the loop to prove that they were, that they, you know, that they were selected for this, that they, were, that they achieved you know, what was required to be part of the club. Another one is ticketing for events. Obviously, there's sporting events is the obvious one, but we've also dug into things like speaker series on campus, uh, things like job fairs and alumni events. But the one that we're most excited about uh, that has potentially the broadest reach and the highest utility is the, the idea. So on campus, it would be the idea of a digital student ID that can not only act as your proof that you're a student of the university, but it can also act as your authorization and uh, authentication for pretty much anything on campus. You can use it for logging into your campus email. You can use it to register for classes. Uh, you can use it to debit meals from your meal plan if, uh, at, at Commons. And then you can go all the way up to physical access to buildings. And then the last thing I'll say on this is that the, the data models are flexible enough that you can actually repurpose VC, like the VCs that I've already mentioned, um, into, into other interesting use cases. So like going back to the club example, let's say one of these clubs wants to launch a Discord and welcome all alumni to connect with each other, either for job opportunities or business opportunities or whatever they might want to talk about. Um, instead of having to issue a purpose-built credential for that Discord, you can just say, hey, anybody who already has accepted a credential as a member of this club, just come to the Discord server, present the credential, and you're in. So yeah. Aaron, the Ant Company is using tags and NFTs to enable users to own and control their identities, which is interesting both from the identity side and real-world utility with things like technologies like NFTs and tokenization. What's your vision for those technologies coming together? How will that benefit users and developers? Yeah, for sure. So first off, the ampersand symbol itself kind of means a connection between two things. That's why we chose it as our brand. And we think about an Ant being able to connect to anything. So over time, you know, you'll be able to connect with people, places, websites, transactions, like all kinds of things. And certainly we're not building all of that. We'll build kind of this thin layer that connects to all kinds of things. So in sort of all of that work, we trademarked the actual ampersand itself, uh, which is kind of weird to say that, you know, we have a trademark for something that's on essentially every keyboard. Um, but that allowed us to create these things called and tags, which are basically a universal handle that points to your identity. Um, so much like an email and phone doesn't change and is the same in every context, uh, an and tag is the same in every context and points back to um, back to your identity. So with thinking about global scale of identity and the size of this problem and just like even just with with all of us, we're all on this call, like working on different areas of identity. And that's how big of a a challenge it is and how big of a problem it is. And so if you think about the global scale of everyone having an identity, eventually, uh, we saw that as an opportunity to basically give people an and tag that's free, but then also hold back part of that namespace and then carve those off as premiums, um, sell those, uh, let brands get their their premium and tags, uh, let those things be bought and sold. 
And that naturally led to being backed by an NFT. And so we have uh, NFTs on, on XRPL that back um, all of these premium Antags. And so there's basically a market for that. And that helps fund kind of identity for all. So we think the aspects of those being, you know, immutable, transparent, um, those things lead to, you know, kind of fairness and ownership uh, of those assets. Let's talk a little bit about some of the regional differences. Um, as most of you probably know, I'm based in the United States and the regulatory environment here and the crypto climate is not, I'll say it's not super great right now for uh, innovation and development of new technologies. I guess I'll start with Julian Lightloff. You are based in Berlin. Uh, you want to speak about how the crypto climate is in the Web3 landscape there? What do the regulations look like? What does adoption look like? Yeah, sure. I, I mean, I, I don't think it was a coincidence that, um, for example, the Ethereum network was was started in Berlin, um, but it wasn't necessarily started by, by Germans, right? And this is what kind of resembles the ecosystem here. It's, it's pretty diverse and... Um, pretty focused on the core values, I would say. Um, you had lots of shifts, you know, people going to to uh, Lisbon uh, in the last couple of years uh, and coming back. But what I, what I really like here is that no one kind of sees themselves as like the regional ecosystem. It's like an ecosystem made for collaboration. And this might even have uh, political and historical reasons, right? Being kind of like an enclave back in the days where actual cryptography was, uh, was super important. I think that the ecosystem is actually better in terms of policies um, when it comes to us here having the chance to test and try out some things. And the regulator has been quite nuanced so far. However, there are some specific use cases that are not so great here. So, for example, we do not offer our identification services for German companies because of a very specific regulation. So we serve everyone in the world uh, but Germany, basically, which is uh, kind of sad, but uh, it is the way it is. Yeah, there's definitely some of those ironies. Julian uh, Verhelt, Dios, and Aaron, um, you're both based in the United States, as I am. You're approaching decentralized identity from very different angles and markets. Uh, what are you guys seeing around adoption, developer use, regulation, gaps, opportunities, anything like that? Yeah, I, I, so I think about it a lot as like looking back at trends and things that have happened over time. And I, I talk to a lot of people about Gartner's technology hype cycle and how you know you get this huge like wave of excitement and stuff about a new technology whenever it comes out and then lots of people rush in and inevitably you have the scammers and the people that are going to do like unsavory things and then those kind of all get washed out and Gartner calls it the the trough of disillusionment uh right and so it feels like we're sort of in that moment when all the scammy things are getting washed out and we're starting to see the real like value and the real use cases in this new technology. And that's what's exciting to me. That's what I feel like kind of the moment that we're in in the US to regulatory, you know, standpoint. So, uh, you know, I think we'll start to see a lot more of the long-term value uh, in the same way that we saw these trends in, you know, Webvan being a billion dollar company that went public and didn't really have a business model that was going to work and things like that in the early 2000s or late 90s. Yeah, to, to piggyback on what Aaron was talking about, we're in, we're in that trough right now. And I think the, the main opportunities that I see are um, just finding, there's three things. There's finding the utility that real normal people are going to 
find in these technologies, um, fixing the UX, and then uh, shoring up the developer tooling. So on, on the utility side, I, I've definitely seen that there's been a, like up to this point, specifically in, in SSI and the community, the SSI community, there's been a lot of focus on the data models and the protocols, but everyone seems to be kind of shying away from trying these things in the real world. I don't know what it is, but like especially especially in the people that work specifically in the standards, they they kind of they kind of looked a little surprised when you they hear that like people are built like using real software that uses these technologies, which is wild to me. But but people don't so people don't really care about the details of the of that stuff in their day to day. They just want software that makes some part of their life easier. People don't buy like identity, quote unquote. Um, maybe maybe companies do on like the IAM and you know, identity and access manager side of things, but for the most part, normal people buy ease of use entertainment. On the UX side, this current iteration of wallets and the UX that they bring along is just way too high friction for your average user to even want to to try it. Right? Even the word wallet is a little problematic and not a great metaphor for what all these all these things do and how they work together. It sort of boxes in everybody's thinking, and that's and I'm including both end users and developers to a certain extent. Like I feel like we talk about wallets in a way that is like sometimes um, limits are the way that we think about how these technologies can be applied. Um, nobody wants to jump through hoops to fund a wallet, understand key management and seed phrases. Um, like, but those things can be still available, just tucked away as power user features. Um, and then on the developer tooling side, like the 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 developer tooling is pretty lacking in general in the identity space. There's some reference implementations and things that have some documentation, but that's pretty much it. Most tools that are available are they're nowhere close to complete solutions, and the, um, a lot of companies and developers still have to write a lot of things from scratch. But that does present a lot of opportunities too. There's, these are all these are all things that companies can build and offer as products. I get the feeling Aaron wants to agree with you. Yeah, I'm just sitting over here shaking my head yes to like everything you're saying. I mean, yeah, it's the same thing that we're seeing. It's you know, you it's kind of the wild west, and you sort of have to yeah build your own tooling and uh, and try to test things out uh, with with regular people trying to use these things. And you know what what can what are they comfortable with? What do they see as the value? You know, and bring these standards to life because without that, like you know, we're just building science experiments. It yeah it, it's a weird it's a weird chicken and egg problem where I, I understand I understand wanting to get the protocols just right because if you if you get something wrong at the protocol level it's a big problem it's and it's really hard to back out of it but at the same time you you tend to get into analysis paralysis where like you, you, this is the, oh this one piece of the spec absolutely needs to be perfect and then we can't let people touch it until 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 we've gotten this part of the spec figured out. And I, I think we're definitely at that point where it's like, okay, we just got to go. We just we just need to release software and let people start using it and start figuring out what do regular people do with this stuff? Because I don't think we've even answered that question yet. Can we make progress without um, government and regulatory body support? Do we do we need that? Do you think they're going to view these solutions positively? Yeah, well, I, I, I think that's a hard question. I think there are... Like we have so far lived in the Web two space, and there are some you know interesting differences when it comes to how regulatory bodies and government view identity solutions in Web three space versus Web two space. 
Well, in Web2 space, the governments and the regulatory agencies, they're used to having users' data under the control of centralized identities. And over a period of time, these agencies have built regulatory frameworks to hold these organizations accountable for data breaches or misuse of data. But when it comes to Web3, it's a complete different game, right? Now the owners or the users are the owners of their data. And this raises some really important questions for these government bodies. uh, And it's a challenge for the regulators uh, and the need to address and they have to rethink existing data protection laws to fit into this new paradigm. So that's that's kind of a problem. Then there are several other problems I think that they need to think about. That is the concept of legal identity and verification. In Web3 space, pseudonymity um, or self-sovereign identities, they don't really fit into these traditional legal frameworks. So that's where they have to do the rethinking of how to align their identity verification and authentication processes that also confirm to the decentralization models. And others have alluded to compliance is another issue, I think. Things like AML and KYC, they are important, right? They are important for regulatory bodies to prevent illicit activities. But in a decentralized system, it's really hard to implement these measures effectively. And that's where, you know, their more innovative thinking is required there. Another point I would say is... uh, It's like we should not think about the jurisdictional challenges that come with the decentralization and in the Web3 space. Web3 is really global, um, which means, you know, transactions and interactions can happen across borders. And that makes it more difficult for the regulators to enforce, even if they come up with certain rules. Enforcement is so another challenge in this cross-jurisdictional environment. But I think, you know, regulatory bodies, they are exploring ways to adapt their regulations and collaborate with industry stakeholders to strike the right balance between promoting innovation in this Web3 decentralized space and protecting individuals' rights and interests in this space as well. So it's an ongoing journey and we'll see how it rolls out. Is this a solution in search of a problem or are there developers right now who have problems that identity can solve? Is this a drag on institutional adoption? Is now the time that we need decentralized ID solutions? I mean, if I may step in there, right? Like if we're looking at, uh, for example, in the fintech world, you're seeing customer acquisition costs just skyrocketing because people need to re-KYC all the time. Uh, If you're looking at who owns my data, we're looking at monopolies that um, differentiate themselves just by being being the bottleneck for being able to tell that you're not a bot, right? And out of these walled gardens, everything is just wild and rampant and scammy and spammy. And uh, we have a huge problem, not just in Web3, with exactly that challenge, right? So I think it's more needed than ever. And Nanshal was was um, mentioning that, yes, we I think we need to go ahead and test some things and also present finished systems to regulators. But um, I'm a bit more mild on the analysis of what's possible from a policy standpoint, because um, there are, you know, if you're looking at data privacy, the one that really got teeth are the Californian and European laws here. And, you know, some of these um, are to an extent, I would argue, legitimate, even if you're looking at the right to be forgotten, because if we put KYC data on chain, who knows if in 10 years there might be capabilities to 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 decrypt that data and then it's out there right so you want to have uh, you want to build into a system 
that right to be forgotten. And I think that also we as a space need to um, be innovative in that degree to enable these use cases. But I think it's really just the last mile. It's the last 5% that are missing. And we'll see solutions being drawn up this year that actually solve this. Yeah, I mean... Uh, is now the time to build those? No, 20 years ago was the time to build those. But, uh, but you know, but yeah. <laughs> the second best time is right now to build those. So, yeah. Good way to close that segment. So I'm going to ask you guys to get out your crystal balls and tell us five years from now, um, what, what, what is decentralized identity going to enable? What are the use cases going to look like? Uh, what are we going to, what are we going to get out of this? Because I really think that, you know, this technology has a real potential to revolutionize a range of sectors. And I believe in all of those use cases. However, I myself was deeply involved in building DeFi protocols and truly believe in the vision of democratizing access to financial services. So I think one of the most impactful use cases for decentralized identities in the coming years, at least in the space of DeFi, is the, and I think we have talked about it a little bit earlier, the seamless and secure onboarding of users into DeFi protocols. With DIDs, you know, individuals, they can establish their identities and reputation and can utilize it for authenticating across different DeFi protocols. And as Julian um, also alluded to, it eliminates the need for repetitive KYC processes and provides a much, much better user experience. I'm also excited about DIDs enabling the creation of, you know, personalized financial products and services that are tailored to individual users' needs and risk profiles. For instance, automated lending, decentralized insurance, and personalized investment strategies. I think that this level of customization and flexibility, it has a huge potential to transform the traditional financial systems. Listeners can't see our guests, but there's some vigorous agreeing going on here. Julian Lightlock, you want to go next? Uh, yeah, sure. I believe that it's are going to be profiles or containers. And we will all be working together to throw different things into these containers and they will be interoperable. And um, in terms of use cases, I feel like it's more going to be like a portable social media type of application that we see, starting with um, compliance type of data as the first use case, but uh, branching out and even being bigger in uh, social aspects. Probably also only different types of profiles, like my gamer profile, my my professional profile, and my personal one that I use to chat with my friends. Yeah, I um, I, I want to double click on Julian's last point about chatting with your friends. I think that's going to be the um, I think that's going to be the surprise. Uh, I think that's going to be the surprise use case that's going to come out of all of this. Is like using dids as a uh, you, you know your 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 trust anchor for being able to know who you're talking to, and then just expanding that into all communication. So uh, being able to talk, you know, well, you know, simple use cases like we already know about, like being able to text with your friend. I think that's going to be all did and VC driven at some point, all the way to like communications that you receive from corporations. So like, how do you know you're specifically getting an email that's an offer from Apple or from or from Google? Um, I think that's going to be an interesting world where you just have instant verification and an easier way to be able to trust the communications that you're receiving. Yeah, for sure. Authenticity is a 
a huge factor in all of this and something that's like sorely missing today. And we're seeing that like come out in all of these weird ways uh, online, the fact that like that's missing. And then increasingly, like the more networked we all get and the more technology comes into the real world, into every place that we physically go and the vehicles we're riding in and everything else, the more that has an impact. So yeah, totally agree. You know, I think we're going to see it five years out, probably in all kinds of things in daily life. I mean, everything from walking into a coffee shop and then knowing who you are, being able to like put things on your tab and walk out to like Anshel mentioned um, pseudonymous identity. So, you know, I think that's going to be really important in kind of like underlaying, you know, Web3 and even even more kind of Web2 interactions in a way that is more privacy focused. So you can go to a site and maybe they know your shoe size or whatever it is based on what the site is doing. But they don't need to track you all over the internet and increasingly into the real world to like make that possible. You can just transact in that way and be pseudonymous and like, and that all just works. So I think that, and um, I think we'll see some interesting things in like interoperability and just how like all of these like various aspects of identity connect to each other because yeah, I mean, there's no way like you, anyone can build everything so it's like, how are these things going to work together so that this is all like smooth and seamless? Because those are the things that are going to win out. I think as Julian pointed out earlier, it's, the, it's that experience for people that's really going to like win the day. Maybe a little off the topic of decentralized identity, but everybody's been talking about generative AI and the impact that it may have on, well, everything. Any comments? How do you know what you're looking at really came from a specific news institution or from a specific person I think I honestly think that dids and VCs and like everything that we're building right now is going to be like one of the most important things that's going to act as a counterbalance. So like, how do we de- how do we deal with generative AI and like and and what and like and and what it's going to bring to to the web in the next five, 10, 15 years? Yeah, I think that's definitely in the hype cycle right now. What do you think? It's you know, it's one of those things that like it's going to change a whole lot of things. I don't think we fully understand the impact, but yeah, to Julian's point, like the authenticity piece of it and and being able to know like this really came from this person or this organization, like that's going to become increasingly important as the, the ability to fake something gets better, you know, almost by the day. I'd like to thank all four of my guests, something I've never done before, Julian Verheld dios Aaron Slope, Julian Lightloff, and my Ripple colleague, Anshal Malhotra. And thanks to all of you for joining us today. It was a pleasure hosting you on Ripple's podcast, Blockstars. Thank you for tuning in. If you have any questions, you can reach out to me on Twitter at Joel Katz, J-O-E-L-K-A-T-Z. And remember to follow at RippleXDev, RippleXDev on Twitter to keep up with the latest industry news, technical updates, and cool new developer projects in the community. See you around the blockchain.